Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders, a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. And I'm Annalee Newitz, a science journalist who writes science fiction. Today, we're going to talk about pandemics, which is an unfortunately very topical subject right now. And joining us in the studio, we have the amazing Mike Chen, the author of A Beginning at the End. Let's go viral! Mike, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, my name is Mike Chen. I'm a science fiction writer. Uh, my new novel is a very, unfortunately, timely pandemic novel called A Beginning at the End. My debut novel, Here and Now and Then, came out last year. And I also write for geek media like StarTrek.com, Tor.com, and The Mary Sue. All the best places. All the awesomest places. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about something that we're all going through right now. Yes, indeed. Pandemics. And pandemics have been a big deal in science fiction forever, basically since like Mary Shelley's The Last Man, if not before then. And uh, we've always kind of freaked out about plagues and pandemics. And, you know, Mike, I wanted to ask you, why do you think pandemics are so scary? What is so scary about pandemics and how are they different from other kinds of apocalyptic stories? I think with a pandemic, there's two things. One of them is you can be infected and not know it, which is ah. what we're seeing right now with, with the coronavirus with 14-day um, incubation periods. So even though, like, you know, I just dropped my daughter off at preschool today and, like, everyone's cleaning and they're suspending class and everyone seems healthy, but then there's always, like, in the back of your mind, like, even your friends or whoever, you're like, oh, could you be incubating? Because I don't know who you met with at work or, you know, that oh, yeah. sort of... That, that spiraling sort of like tangential anxiety that comes from that. Um, so there's that. And, and then the fact that it's an exponential spreading type of thing. I think right. that's the other part of it is like, you know, like with when you think about like a climate apocalypse, you know, that is a slow moving but gradual destruction of the world type of thing. And then if it was uh, like a nuclear fallout type of thing you would have like okay well it's contained to like these are the missile blasts and then this is the fallout radiation it's a different kind of terror but with pandemic you have like this spiraling out of control something that stays hidden and you're not sure how to stop it you're relying on scientists who have to go to work and work in labs and like manufacture something yeah, one of the things that's really struck me over the past few days as people have been preparing to deal with COVID-19 is that it feels a lot like the days before a hurricane hits in the U.S. where we're getting these models and predictions and people are being told to you know, either evacuate or shelter in place. And there's that sense of kind of gripping the edge of your seat and, and gritting your teeth and getting ready. But the difference is when we're waiting for a hurricane, there's no extra message that says, oh, and by the way, at least, you know, 2% of you will absolutely 100% die. And that's the thing with the pandemic is you're, wait you're not waiting for the wave to hit. You're waiting for the deaths to hit. And Man. that is just terrifying on top of all of the other stuff that you've already been talking about. 
Yeah, and I'm sort of interested in this idea of like people being carriers, people who are like it's it's a it's a recipe for kind of distrusting each other, right? And like Annalie and I were talking on the way over here about like the whole idea of the of patient zero. Like there's this one person who we can blame everything on. And I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but there's this amazing Canadian musical about the HIV crisis called Zero Patients that kind of has patient zero as a a character in the movie like the mythical person who spread HIV. How do pandemic stories kind of appeal to our paranoia about like the enemy in our midst kind of? I think the idea is that we want someone to blame, right? Right. I mean, that makes everything easier. And then as we're asked to be more responsible about like washing hands, clean things, like don't go to work when you're sick. A lot of people are doing that begrudgingly. I mean, right. like with you see in the news right now, like people are actually publicly saying, like, why is the NBA shutting down? Why is March Madness shutting down? This is all overblown. And I think you know we probably all agree that we'd rather be more proactive than reactive when we're past like a turning oh, yeah. point. But there's definitely people who just see this as a nuisance. And so everyone wants someone to blame for their inconvenience. You know, it's like, why should I have to wash my hands? There's a frightening amount of people who said that they've never washed their hands before. Oh, my God. That is (laughs) terrifying. (laughs) I I don't want to share a planet with those people. This is like, I love that we live in the time of like OCD introverts. I feel like I'm ready to conquer everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because like I was just telling my wife that like the self-quarantine for us as introverts, like would be so easy to do if we didn't have a five-year-old who was an extrovert. Like that's Uh... the... The, oh my God. the uh, curse of our existence. But if it was just us, we would just binge so many shows and <laughs> play Borderlands together. Oh and, like That's basically it. Speaking of that kind of intersection of paranoia of like who's spreading it and also the kind of the weird, like the, all the stuff about the modeling and the kind of like trying to figure out scenarios. One story that I've been thinking about a lot is the movie 12 Monkeys uh, from the 1990s, the Terry Gilliam film, where basically Bruce Willis plays a, a guy who goes back in time not to stop the plague, but to model the spread of the plague. And I've actually got a great clip of Bruce Willis talking about this. Five billion people died in 1996 and 1997. Almost the entire population of the world. Only about 1% of us survived. Are you going to save us, Mr. Cole? How can I save you? This already happened. I can't save you. Nobody can. I am simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now, Mr. Cole? No. 1990 is the past. This already happened. Part of what's so creepy about that clip is the fact that Bruce Willis is talking to a room full of people and he's like, you're all already dead. Like, this is the past to me. Like, there's no changing what's already happened. You're all dead and there's no, you're going to die. And that's just it. Most of the human species is going to die. But also the fact that he's like this paranoia about like, who caused this disease? Was it the Army of the Twelve Monkeys? Was it Jeffrey Goines, this character played by Brad Pitt? Was it some other person or entity? Like, there's like some kind of mysterious enemy that he's trying to track down. And it's part epidemiology and part conspiracy thriller, kind of. 
And it's it's two of Mike's favorite things. It's time travel and right. pandemic. So <laughs> you crossed my books over together. There would just be a lot more crying in my version of it. <laughs> yes. That'd be a way better. There version. would be a lot more processing of feelings, I think, for yes. sure. Yeah. No, I, I think that 12 Monkeys is a really interesting one because it does also play into all of these images of patient zero. For example, during the early AIDS crisis, there was this idea that patient zero had had sex with a monkey. You know, that was like one of the the models that they oh came up with. God. And monkeys, like the idea of like something crossing over from monkeys to humans, like is so like provocative. And it's also in 28 Days Later. And like, it's this weird moment where like the origin of this terrible conspiracy, which of course is a very human thing, somehow gets traced back to right. this animalistic thing. I wondered if we could talk a little bit about Something that I really liked in A Beginning at the End, Mike's novel, which is that instead of it being something like 12 Monkeys where there's like a vast conspiracy or like there's this kind of shady organization behind it, it's really just, I think of it as a domestic melodrama, basically. It's about people sitting around and having feelings. And and of course, they've passed the pandemic, so they're also kind of dealing with PTSD. But I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, Mike, like your choice to, instead of having this like crazy international intrigue zombie tale to just be like, well, what happened to this guy's feelings and his marriage? Yeah. So, uh, if, well, I realized that there's this big space in apocalyptic fiction where it's either the first year of like everything's falling apart and people are killing each other for groceries, or <laughs> it's like a hundred years in the future where you know, society has already shifted and there's been several generations of, of people who know how to live in the new world. And I thought it would be much more interesting to focus on like that near future area where people have survived and they're just processing their shit because there's a lot of shit to process. Yeah. And that's where the idea came from. And I think like it feels like eerily, you know, similar to like what we're experiencing right now because you're seeing, I think, a lot of people feeling the stress of like one is not knowing. I mean, my book takes place in, in six years after there's been a, a pandemic and a quarantine, but you can still see the after effects of it. Like everyone's wearing breathing masks and everyone's using hand sanitizer and keeping social distance. So, you know, there was, it was really frightening seeing those things start to play out, but there's the idea of like the, these things that we have taken as for granted as a society for so long, and now that they're being infringed upon, everyone's stressed out and not sure how to cope. And they're coping in different ways. And now that everyone's on Twitter and social media, right. we're all seeing everyone's freak out in real time, which is probably not good. Yeah. So, Mike, you wanted to have an apocalyptic story and sort of tell about a story about the aftermath of the apocalypse. What made you choose a pandemic versus, you know, some other kind of disaster? I really wanted to have something where on the surface, like if you took a snapshot of these people in the story, on the surface, everything would look the same because like they're in a city and there's probably cars in the background and there's like electronics and things. But then when you look closer, it's like the electronics are dated. The cars are not working that well. The infrastructure is not holding up. And underneath the surface for the people, they are harboring a lot of trauma. And so the only way to really pull that off I specifically selected 2 billion survivors. So you're killing off about 75% of the population. And I looked at like, what are the different models you could use for that? Climate apocalypse would fundamentally shift 
infrastructure, where people lived, like how people lived, everything. And so that really wouldn't work for this type of story. Like a zombie apocalypse would mean like you're dealing with violence every day. And that that doesn't work for this either. And then like a nuclear apocalypse, like you'd be dealing with radiation fallout and mutation and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, so that doesn't really work either. So like it's specifically the pandemic to basically lop off a significant part of the population, but then keep the infrastructure the same. That was basically the uh, the idea behind it. So it's kind of the quiet apocalypse. Yeah, the quiet apocalypse in that you're not surviving anymore. Like you think about a lot of apocalyptic fiction is just focused on survival. You know, like you're you're fighting off the zombies to survive or you're fighting off like the motorcycle gains to survive. And I really wanted a world where people could congregate and on a core level, live their day-to-day life like we expect in modern society. And that's when all of the trauma starts to unpack. Yeah, and it's interesting. I One of the things that I've been obsessing about as we prepared for this episode is the fact that a lot of apocalyptic stories that would have used nuclear war or some other kind of like fast and kind of like hugely destructive force are now using plagues instead. And two examples that came to mind were Planet of the Apes, like the 1968 movie. We find out at the end that there was a nuclear war and that's why the Statue of Liberty is buried and that's why apes took over. But in the 2010s version, the trilogy that that starts with Rise of the Planet of the Apes, it's something called the simian flu. And actually we have a clip of people talking about the simian flu. Due to the extremity of the simian flu crisis, all regular government functions have been suspended indefinitely. Attention. And then there's also The Last Ship, which is a show that started airing about like six or seven years ago, where it's based on a novel from the 80s in which, again, a nuclear war wipes out most of humanity. And there's this one naval vessel left kind of to survive. But in the TV show, which started airing, like I said, six or seven years ago, it's suddenly a plague instead. And, you know, it's interesting that there's been this people who take older apocalyptic stories. One of the things that they reach for almost automatically is replacing nuclear war with with pandemic because it's either scarier or more in the front of our minds or easier to dramatize in the moment, maybe. I thought it was so interesting what you said, Mike, about how the zombie apocalypse is a violent one versus like pandemic being kind of, I mean, essentially nonviolent in some ways, um, although there is violence in your book. But I think that's the same thing with nuclear war. It's like moving from a violent apocalypse to something quiet. Like if you look at when those pieces of media were made, there's still a lot of Cold War anxiety around there. And I think there's a fundamental shift where even, you know, they kind of mock it in the Fallout series of video games where like the, the war in Fallout is like between the Chinese and everyone else. Now, as we're shifting more to like a pandemic style apocalypse in popular media, I think it's more about like, you know, we don't necessarily fear the same things that we did in like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, even the 80s. And now it's more of like this creeping anxiety of, I I mean, the apocalypse is always a metaphor for something, right? In fiction, it can be capitalism, it could be the climate change, it could be the Cold War. I think it just kind of reflects on feeling safe, but not feeling safe. And I think that's especially prescient in like this era of like digital information where we know everything, but we don't know everything. And I think like you're starting to get that sense of like, there's just like this underlying anxiety because 
everything is interconnected now. I think that like you've seen a marked shift that way. Yeah, and it's interesting. I've got a clip from the 1994 miniseries, The Stand, based on the Stephen King book, which kind of dramatizes the paranoia and also the uncertainty because the authorities are telling people that the Captain Trips virus is not real, but people are panicking and freaking out and the hospitals are full. So here's that clip. You might want to consider delaying your trip back a few days. Why, what's the problem? Things are weird. People are really scared about this Captain Trips thing. Yeah, the radio here says it's just bull. The radio here says the hospitals are filling up with sick people, and some of them are dying. What, people are dying of the flu? There's a lot of soldiers in there. And that miniseries is right after the end of the Cold War, although I guess the book came out in 78. It feels like The Stand is like a seminal work in the kind of disease apocalypse genre. Yeah, I, I think like if you look at the the lists of you know for whatever reason, there's been a lot of uh, I'd say in the past few weeks like you know read these or watch these pandemic things, right now like the stand always no pun intended stands out. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> I think also like uh, Chuck Wendig's recent novel, The Wanderers, which is deals with a lot of the same issues as the stand, which is to say it's very American. It's, it's all about sort of different forces in the United States, like ripping the country apart. And, you know, the stand is also about kind of like a right wing, creepy nuke loving white guy versus like a nice black lady, which feels very of the moment <laughs> in uh. some ways. Um, I'm sorry, I just gave away like the spoilers for the stand, maybe. But um, <laughs> but I mean, I feel like, you know, again, that that it's about the U.S. tearing itself apart. But the other thing I think that happens in a lot of these stories, like a, the, the sort of metaphor that's being played with is like fear of immigration, mm -hmm. which is why authors and creators often seem to want to have some bad guy to blame. You know, the bad guy is always someone who's coming from another place. Like Dracula came from Transylvania and bought up a bunch of real estate in London and started turning people into the undead. You know, it's the original kind of undead immigrant story, which is kind of about contagion ultimately. I mean, it starts out being about real estate, but it's really about contagion and like fear of, of immigrants coming in and taking over. I think too, like the examples you were talking about with the myth of like, you know, who had sex with a monkey, you know, for, for the AIDS yes. outbreak, that form of blame even now you see with like, you know, people blaming the Chinese and like, you know, oh, who ate the, you know, the weird meat in the Wuhan market that, that started this. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I, there's this fear of the other. You're, you're othering the patient zero, you know, until like, wow, they're just so messed up that they had to, you know, insert blank action there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. It, that makes it easy to harbor blame and not take responsibility of like, maybe that would have happened anyways, but if our government had the proper infrastructure and coordinated internationally, maybe it wouldn't be this bad. You know, like it's easier to just blame this person who did a despicable act in another country rather than look at the mitigating factors that are like not allowing it to be contained. Yeah. And I think it, it goes back to what you were saying too, about this fear or anxiety around being interconnected and that that's part of the pandemic fear, because there's nothing like immigration to show how interconnected we all are socially and culturally. And as many pandemic experts have been saying today, the cat is out of the bag. Like people have been immigrating for like, oh, 5,000 years. So <laughs> that that's not something we can we can stop. And so instead we find ways of demonizing it. 
there's a really fantastic book that came out last year called Famous Men Who Never Lived by Kay Chess. And it's this parallel world story, but it's actually about immigration because the parallel world in that story, it, it takes place in modern day New York City. But the parallel world in that story is dying from nuclear fallout. And the scientists there find a portal to our world and they immigrate as many survivors as they can into our world. So the story is about how people who have left their parallel world, which was like deviated from ours in like the 1930s, are trying to adjust to this world that looks like theirs, but is totally different. Like the science has developed differently. The pop culture has developed differently. Huh. That was just a really fascinating take on like immigration in a completely different way. I loved how that story like it, it showed that even when like these people were easily unidentifiable in our society because like they look exactly the same, there's still like this rampant demonizing because they're like, oh, we, we took in an extra 200,000 people or whatever. And like, we don't have the money to support that. We don't mm -hmm. have the infrastructure to support that. But they just popped up through this interdimensional portal. What are we going to do? <laughs> I love how modern fiction is willing to play with some of these tropes and twist them around in ways that probably we wouldn't have seen in like, you know, 80s media. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about crazy viruses in science fiction and fantasy. One of the things that makes viruses and pandemics and plagues so useful in speculative fiction generally is that they can do pretty much anything you want them to do. Like, you know, anytime you need a plot device that just causes something weird to happen, you can just have like a fictional virus. And like, you know, Wikipedia's list of fictional viruses is kind of amazing, but also just all over the internet. There's tons of stuff like there are viruses that kill all the men like in Ammonite by Nicola Griffith. There's viruses that kill all the women, like in The White Plague by Frank Herbert. There's a bunch of viruses that basically make it impossible to reproduce, like in Children of Men and Inferno by Dan Brown, and to some extent in the Road to Nowhere trilogy by Meg Ellison, which kills, I think, most of the women and also makes childbirth deadly. And then also that makes you super reproduce, like in the movie Slither. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a virus? Is it's it like, like an, an outer space it, contagion. It's yeah. I mean, it's the scariest representation of pregnancy I've ever seen. Yeah, like Doctor Who just had a virus that interacts with the plastic in your body and makes you grow like weird yes! chalky scales and then Gross! explode into dust. There's a virus called the Hanahaki disease that like people in the fanfic community are obsessed with that makes anybody who's in unrequited love cough up flower petals until they're no longer in love <laughs> and then they're cured. Aww. Um, there's the real life disease that some people believe in called Morgulons that makes wires come out of your skin. China Mieville has a story uh, where there's a virus that makes anybody who says a particular word lose their mind. Um, but you only if you say that word. Uh, there's diseases that kill magical people like in Harry Potter and Shadowhunters. There's diseases that kill only mutants in like Marvel comics. And then um, there's one of my favorite diseases from Kat Valente's novel Palimpsest where it's a sexually transmitted magical portal that takes you to another world. Yeah, so, like yeah, you do. You know, it's, so it's a, a contagious sexual city <laughs> or yeah. something. Yeah, and you know, Stephen King has a virus that hides inside your cell phone in the cell and it... <laughs> 
kills anybody who gets a phone call, a particular phone call. There are diseases that cause insomnia in 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but also a bunch of other recent literary fiction. There's a thriller called Codon Zero by Jim Hendy, where there's a specially engineered disease that only kills Arabs and Jews. That was engineered by somebody who's trying to stop the Middle East crisis. Somebody who doesn't understand how genetics work. In Clive Barker's (laughs) The Plague, there's a disease that puts all children into a coma for 10 years, and then they wake up wanting to kill all adults after the 10-year coma. Uh Uh-huh. That's Um, just like childhood, I think. There's diseases that kill all adults but leave the children alive, like in that one Star Trek episode, but a bunch of other things. There's zombies, there's vampires. And then my favorite, actually, is the simian flu in the Planet of the Apes, the recent Planet of the Apes trilogy, which first kills off most of humanity. Like, I think 98% of humanity is killed. And then mutates into a virus that makes the remaining humans unable to speak. Just randomly. But I also, I want to, Planet of the Apes is one of my favorite franchises, I guess. And I, in the first um, series, one of the things that happens in the mini retcons is that there's a pandemic that kills cats and dogs oh, and man. all cats and dogs die. <clears throat> and as a result, people start keeping chimps and other apes as pets. And that's the beginning of the uplift that that, that causes the apes to achieve human equivalent intelligence. There's all of these weird moments like early in that film where we see like statues in public squares to dogs and cats and they're like to man's best friend. And like everyone is super sad about about losing their cats and dogs, which it's it's actually kind of an amazing concept because people would go nuts if that happened. Like we would be so incredibly sad. Um, Yeah. So I don't ever want another movie about uh, how all cats and dogs die. So screw that. So in Mass Effect, there's the uh, the genophage, which is yeah. during the war between the Turians and the Krogans, the Turians develop a bioweapon that prevents a lot of the Krogans from reproducing. And then after the war is settled, they can't stop it. And so this race of like warrior creatures, like even though they're the badass tanks of the universe, like they can't persist as a species successfully because this thing has been injected into their society. Oh, man. And then there's also The Last of Us, which is like another video game plague that has like totally destroyed my mind, which has like the mind controlling fungus. I don't know if that's really a plague. I mean, it's a fungal infection. It's a a plague. It's a kind of plague. It It counts. It's really gross and awesome. Isn't fictionally like isn't vampirism considered like a plague more or less because it's transmitted through blood? I think so. I mean, there's a lot of and especially in the 80s, there were a lot of sort of fantasy stories where vampires and AIDS were kind of intertwined. I read a, a novel back then called Vampires Anonymous, which is explicitly about like a gay vampire plague and how people cope with it. It was kind of a funny horror novel. Contagion and blood and undeath, you know, (laughs) they all get smooshed together. I have to bring up like one of my favorite scenes from a Contagion movie, which is the 1980s version of The Thing. Yeah. Which Charlie and I were debating. I don't know what you think about this, Mike, like whether that's actually a Contagion movie or if it's more just an alien invasion. But every time the presidential administration in the U.S. tries to talk about testing, I always think that what they're really thinking about is this scene in the thing where they're testing to see who might be the thing. And what they do is they put everybody's <laughs> blood into a Petri dish. And the thing about the thing is that every little piece of it is alive. 
And so if they stick a hot wire into that blood that came from the thing, the blood will literally scream and run away. And so they're going around the room and they're sticking the wire in everybody's Petri dish and it's just kind of sizzling. And then finally they stick it in one and the blood's like, ah! And like, <laughs> away. And ah! The guy who's the thing starts turning into the thing and it's really gross. But I, that's like kind of what I imagine at the White House. They're like, that's how we're going to do these tests. And we're just going to put everyone and stick a hot wire in and if it screams and runs away and they have COVID-19. <laughs> be great if that was how it works i'm picturing the current administration trying to do that like in my head and it's just like this ultimate like bad comedy yeah <laughs> so it would be a reality it. show for sure like yeah. all right who's next <laughs> but this is part of what i love about these stories is like you have these kind of realistic quote-unquote virus stories like outbreak or contagion or whatever which attempts to kind of deal with this in like a semi-scientific way. And, but then you also have this thing, which is the, what I love about science fiction and fantasy in general, this idea of like, hey, we just it can do whatever. It can do whatever we mean not. You know, it can just kill this one ethnicity. It can just kill little kids. It can whatever. It's the holodeck of apocalypse stories. It kind of is. <laughs> it's like a Swiss army knife. Yeah. Well, so what do you what do you guys make of that? Like that was a pretty impressive list of, of I know. possible just, plagues, just Charlie Jane. Ones. Yeah. And it, there could be, I'm sure there's like a million others that people are thinking of right now. So why is it such a Swiss army knife? I think because you can tailor it to anything. So if you need your narrative device to be, I'm going to talk about racism or classism. So I'm going to create something that only affects you know right. this group of people. It's a very easy mechanic to do that. So whatever your allegory is, like even in mine, I had to come up with like, okay, how is this going to be transmitted? And it was like, oh, I have this checklist of like communicable ways and I'm like, well, what's going to fit the story best? <laughs> you know, right. So if you're creating fiction and you want to tell a certain story and use a certain allegory, you can kind of reverse engineer it. And the a pandemic provides a lot of flexibility for that. Yeah, it's like sort of like mass death, but targeted. Like, how do you have like targeted mega killing? <laughs> when you're reverse engineering that, then you can, there's all sorts of fake science you can add in there where it's like, Oh, well, it, it was a conspiracy theory by people who hated, you know, poor people in this county, and then they got out of control mm -hmm. because it spread to other counties. You know, it's very easy to just tick the boxes off. And because, uh, because it's fiction, you only need some level of hand wavy science to support it. With a lot of plague stories, there's often the thing of like science got out of control, like, yeah. you know, scientists meddled in something that they shouldn't have meddled in and they played God. And like, you know, like I Am Legend, the Will Smith movie, which we actually talked a lot about in our nihilism episode, starts off with this whole thing about how they created a virus to kill cancer, I think. And then the virus got out of control and started just killing everything. Mm -hmm. And it's it's often that, like that's 28 Days Later too. It's yeah, like, 28 Days Later, it's animal testing. Right. So it's like linked to something that's actually like ethically dubious or whatever. There's, I think there's often like kind of a moral, again, it goes back to the patient zero thing where it's like even in, for example, a highly realistic movie like Contagion, how does patient zero in the United States happen? She does it because she's fucking around on her husband. She's cheating on her husband <laughs> yeah. and screws this guy and gets the disease. Right. A European, I think. So oh, justifies yeah. closing the border with Europe, I think. Um, and he probably had sex with like, uh, I don't know, a giraffe. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> well, some sort of European animal, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, I don't know. What would that be? A bulldog, perhaps? A bulldog. Yeah, it's actually the bull. I don't know. God, what, this what is, animals we do We might have to cut this part. I don't know. <laughs> that's the UK, Annalise. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, yeah, that's right. And they're not in Europe anymore. No. I know. We need to come up with a really vicious like stereotype of the dirty things that Europeans do. I mean, they eat all kinds of gross stuff. <laughs> yeah. Snails. Snails. They had sex truffles. with snails. Yeah. <laughs> he had snail sex and then he had sex with this woman and that's how we got contagion. <laughs> I mean, it sounds about right. It, it sounds very plausible. But yeah, part of what's scary about these viruses is often like their origin, like Andromeda strain. It's this virus that from comes space. from space. And actually, here's a clip of them talking about how it eats through plastic. It's no accident. I suspect they were looking for the ultimate biological weapon. You could change everything. It's like partly scary because it's like from beyond and partly scary because we don't know how it works and it's confusing and it's weird and it defies the rules of our science. I think that's another thing about diseases is that we can easily believe that they would behave in ways that science doesn't understand. So before our final segment, I wanted to finish up with a question, which is, um, you know, mostly for Mike, which is, I, I, I wonder, do you think it helps us deal with a real life pandemic to have fictional representations? Like, is it helping us prepare in some way, do you think? I think it's helping and hurting. I think in some ways, you know, there's like the practical element of like, if you experience it in fiction, your mind will probably be thinking about like, okay, well, what, what should I do in, in that circumstance? But I, I think the wrong people might take it the wrong way. Like it's very easy to move it past the realm of fiction and assume that it's possibility. I'm sure everyone has seen on Twitter, like jokes about like, oh, the, the zombie apocalypse is next. We're just one step away. Mm-hmm. And that even if COVID-19, you know, turned people, like brought them back from the dead and turned them into zombies, like the way that a zombie would survive in like our natural world, like is nothing like, you know, what what would actually happen on The Walking Dead or something. There's yeah. like bugs and UV radiation and all this other stuff that would just break it down right away. So you there was uh, there was a story in the news of like four or five years ago where two guys were like marathoning The Walking Dead and they were like drinking at the same time and they were like in you know, 20 hours into it. And one guy just like lost his mind and smashed his friend over the edge. And he was like totally drunk at the time. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, let's, let's, let's not take this too far, (laughs) you know, use the, the fiction for the allegory and like the practical, like, Oh, what can we learn about survivalism if necessary? But uh, I, I think like some people might take it a little bit too much as fact. When, yeah. Like, having written a pandemic novel, like I can attest that like even though I'm seeing weird shit play out, you know, in real time, like all of it was just based on very logical thinking of what if this happened and then reverse engineering like okay, what are the societal things that would have to fall into place for that? Like it's not I'm not prophetic, it's just very logic-based thinking. Do you feel like that you're kind of seeing stuff that you had already imagined happen? Like is stuff happening around you where you're like, oh, that's what I was writing about last year. Yeah, it's it's creepy. Um, like, <laughs> there, there's oh in like, one of the opening scenes where the um, the two of the main characters are talking in a cafe and one of them has her, her breathing mask off and then someone just like yells at them for like, why is your mask off? Yeah. Um, oh, man. And then there's like in the school, there's like these cartoon 
illustrated cartoon graphics of like how to put on your breathing masks and how to clean your hands and things like that. And, you know, like we're seeing that kind of stuff right now. So like the scariest part was when the um, major league baseball announced the cancellation of the, the giants and the A's um, their interleague preseason game. And in my book, there's a scene that takes place in a San Francisco bar. I wrote it in San Francisco. And it's like the last night that baseball played a game and it's right after a Giants and A's game, and like the, oh, man. the, the big... so thanks, I saw Mike. Like, yeah, no, it's totally my fault. <laughs> oh man, yeah. So, but but all, all these things are like you know when I wrote that scene, like I played it out because like the, my virus moved from east to west, so it was like a logical point, and and like from a storytelling perspective, it's because I wanted the book to take place in San Francisco and that's it. So like all of these things can be extrapolated backwards uh, into like what fits the storytelling and what would logically exist from a world building perspective. Yeah. And now the real world is, is building it up. So yeah. All right. So let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about something very happy, which is how we're all obsessed with Legends of Tomorrow. But first, Mike, tell us what is Legends of Tomorrow? Legends of Tomorrow is the best goddamn show on TV. It is, <laughs> um, except for the, the first season was really bad. But after that, it's basically like the B team from DC Comics um, meets Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah. meets Doctor Who. The writing staff has leaned into the ridiculous, and they so really you have, have. This, um, they have this like immense chemistry between all of the lead characters, and they're thrown into these ridiculous scenarios where it's really funny. But they know the writers and the actors know their characters really, really well, and so you're having these really authentic reactions to just you know like a giant plushy. God. <laughs> yeah, Bebo. Bebo is the best. Bebo uh, is it, the so best. It's funny and the action is great and it's just unlike anything on TV and more people need to see it. Yeah, and part of what I love about Legends of Tomorrow is how gleefully ridiculous its time travel is and how, yes. you know, there's this whole thing that in some time travel stories where it's like we have to take it very seriously and there have to be like rules and you can't do blah, blah, blah. And like Legends of Tomorrow just leans into the ridiculousness of it in a way that like few other time travel stories are, are able to. And obviously you're a time travel expert. So maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Anna Lee is the time travel expert. I, I think just you're both. Time yeah, travel actually, experts. we both have have time travel books. It's true. And I think we both struggled with trying to have like a pretty coherent system for for time travel that would feel plausible. Um, so maybe that's part of why Legends of Tomorrow is so great, because it's just like, yeah, whatever. I think the thing that I like most about it is that there's so much kind of like pseudo ethical hand wringing in time travel stories about not changing history, which I find to be just kind of cynical because, of course, we're constantly changing history. We're learning new things about it. We're changing our opinions about it. Like history books written now are very different from ones written 100 years ago. And so even if they're about the same thing, like history books about the Roman Empire, totally different in the 19th century than they are now. And so... 
I love in Legends of Tomorrow that they're like, fuck it, we're going to change history. Like, we don't care. Like, I mean, they do care. And they have moments where they're like, oh, my gosh, wow, I created a daughter. Oops. Um, You know, like suddenly I have another daughter in my timeline. But they're ultimately like a lot of the changes they make are great. And like they're trying to make things better and like they rescue people. And I I love that. So there's like a turning point on the show where they, they have an episode where they're like, Helen and Troy has to die in order for the timeline to be saved. And then they're like, you know what? Fuck it. We're just going to take Helen of Troy and like, let her go live with the Amazons. And like, she could just spend the rest of her life being an Amazon. There's this great episode in the second season where, um, they go back to the antebellum South and rescue some slaves who were also kind of destined to die and I was like, yeah, like, let's Hell just, yeah. you know, like our modern sensibilities are going to come back into history and change things. And that's, and that's okay. Good. And that's, yeah, there's no, why do we have to preserve the old history? Like the old history sucked in a lot of ways. So I like that. It's very cheerful. I also appreciate how, like, you know, even in um, like ways that you, wouldn't expect like this most this week's most recent episode had them going into a version of Mr. Rogers neighborhood. I know it was um, insane. Just playing out there. <laughs> it was insane. And I'm like, how do you even come up with that? So not only is like, are they playing with time travel, but they always have something like that. Like, uh, like we mentioned Bebo for the uninitiated Bebo is a talking plushie kind of like Teddy Ruxpin from the eighties that um, gets <laughs> misinterpreted and turned into a God. Uh, and then becomes a god, and it's uh, amazing. the fact that they're yeah they're playing with these anachronisms, but then using them as really smart narrative devices, and so it's like it's funny and amazing and ridiculous. There's also a really cool story about it, and th- I really appreciate how you know they're letting their characters have like these really natural reactions to seeing like giant Teddy Ruxpin. <laughs> fighting <a dragon. laughs> it's awesome. I saw, I saw this, someone on Twitter posted that clip and I guess they had never seen the show before. And the person's comment was like, I can't believe something like this made it on TV like in a disparaging way. And then all the comments are like, this is Legends of Tomorrow. You do not fuck with that. <laughs> you do Good. not fuck with Legends Good. of Tomorrow. It has a posse. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for joining us, Mike. Mike, where can people find you online? I am mostly on Twitter at Mike Chen Writer. Uh, you have to distinguish between Mike Chen, the, the food guy who has like way more followers than me. And I sometimes get his fan email. Um, <laughs> and, and also Mike Chen, like the tech startup guy. Like I also get pinged for him sometimes. But I, Mike Chen writer, uh, my website is MikeChenBooks.com. My books are a beginning at the end, the pandemic with hope book. And then uh, here and now and then the time travel father daughter story with hope. They're both That's fantastic. Awesome. Highly recommended. Yay, so you've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. You can find us where all the podcasts are found. And please, if you like our podcast, please, please, please leave a review on Apple or any place else, or just go into the bathroom and shout about how much you love our podcast. Whatever you leave do, some graffiti. it really helps. Graffiti is awesome. We love pro podcast graffiti. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Our Opinions Are Correct. And you can follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. And thanks so much to Veronica Simonetti for being the greatest audio producer in the universe. And thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks again to you for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. All right. Bye. bye.